Thank you, Mike, and good morning, church. Good to see you on this Lord's Day. I do hope you're doing well as spring comes at 11.33 this morning. There's a few. But good to see you. I, I do hope you're doing well. It is Sunday, March 20th of 2022, and God is on his throne this morning. And all of God's people said, amen. He is, and he is among us right now. I trust that every moment you are sensing his presence, and we want to talk about that as I invite you to open your Bibles and go with me, if you will, to Genesis chapter 28 this morning. And as you're turning there, I just want to give accent to what Mike said a moment ago about how every gift you give goes around the world. A portion of it does. Do you know that it takes one full offering per month? There are four Sundays a month, sometimes five Sundays, but it takes one full offering each month to support the work that God is doing among our missionary families all around the world. And so your faithful giving towards the ministry of our church and the ministry worldwide matters so very much. I'm excited to look at the text this morning in Genesis chapter 28. One of the ways I enjoy studying the Bible is to explore it biographically Sometimes what is called a character study. The study of a person in the Bible helps us see how God dealt with someone in their own historical context and how they navigated the life of faith in a broken world. And then we get to discover how, from lessons of their life, we may do the same today. During Lent, as we move towards Holy Week, we are looking at the life of Jacob. And Jacob has long been a fascinating character to me, one of my favorites in the Bible. The second sermon I ever preached way back when I was 18 years of age on February 14th, 1981, was on the life of Jacob. And I have lived with this man for years. And now thousands of sermons later, I am still drawn to his life and the story of how God transformed this rascal into a spiritual giant. Maybe that's my story, and maybe that's why I like his life so much. You know, the specifics may differ, but Jacob's story is our story. He is ambitious and brash. Self-reliant and shrewd, capable and cunning, gifted, yet guilty. By now, I think you may know how the story of, of Jacob begins. He was the second-born twin of Isaac and Rebekah. And while still in the womb, God gave Rebekah a stunning oracle stating that in her womb were twin boys, Esau and Jacob, and they would become two nations that would be in constant conflict with one another, the Edomites and the Israelites. But that God had chosen Jacob, the second born, to be the bearer of the messianic line. When they were young men, Jacob manipulated his brother out of his birthright. And then when they were at least 40, Isaac wanted to give Esau, his firstborn, his blessing. And Rebekah feared that Isaac might give the Abrahamic blessing to the wrong son. And so she dressed up her favorite, Jacob, like Esau. She put animal fur on his smooth skin. Jacob pretended to be Esau in order to get the blessing. And when Esau realized that 
that Jacob had now defrauded him for a second time, he threatened to kill him. And, and Esau's threat was not an idle one. He said, Jacob, as soon as dad dies, I'm coming after you. It was no longer safe for Jacob to stay home, and so Rebekah urged him to flee. And before he left, Jacob, interestingly, confirmed his blessing on Jacob. Since the first time that Jacob blessed, or Isaac blessed Jacob, Jacob was pretending to be Esau. So Isaac restates the Abrahamic blessing upon Jacob before he leaves. He leaves quickly without even a chance to pack. Where was he headed? Genesis chapter 28. Our passage will begin in verse 10 this morning, and it simply says, in that very first sentence, Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. He was heading to the place where his mom grew up on the, on the western fringe of Mesopotamia. Being away from home was a new experience for Jacob. Growing up, he never wandered far from his family's tents. And now he was embarking on the most perilous journey of his life. The distance between Beersheba, his home, and Haran, where he was going, was about 550 miles. It would be quite a trip by foot. Maybe averaging 20 miles a day, that's what the normal average human being can do. It would have taken Jacob about a month to get there. And he started out heading north and then turned east. He would cross over the Jordan River. He headed north again towards the ancient city of Damascus. And then he would make another right turn and then take another sharp turn north towards the final leg of his journey, which would take him across the Euphrates River into the western portion of Mesopotamia. Interesting. He was taking the exact route that Abraham took many years ago, but going in exactly the opposite direction. And like his grandfather, as he went, he carried in his bosom the nation of Israel. There's a sense in which we could say at this point that Israel was going into exile. Jacob was leaving the boundaries of what would become known as the promised land. He was running away from the consequences of his own actions, but God was behind this. And that's what I want you to see this morning, that God was sending him into exile in order to help him discover what God had put him on earth to do. That's the realization that every one of us must come to. Why am I here? What's my purpose in life? What's my mission? Jacob was at this point a man with an identity crisis. He was so used to getting what he wanted by plotting and scheming that he did not know who he was and he did not know what his mission in life was supposed to be. But he was exactly where he needed to be to begin the process of discovering his purpose in life by encountering God. And when you meet God, that's when life truly begins. What I want to ask you to do this morning is simply slip your feet into the sandals of Jacob. I really want to ask you, though the circumstances of your life may differ, but I want you to to ask you to to enter into his experience so that what he feels, what he sees, what he knows becomes a part of your experience as well. So let his story be your story as the sun begins to set on the second day since he left home. 
Jacob stops for the night, and we read in verse 11 as we continue in our text this morning, and he came to a certain place and stayed there the night because the sun had set, and taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. For almost 4,000 years, the place where Jacob slept that night has been the same worn-out, bleak landscape. Here he is in the middle of the desert, beneath the canopy of a starry night, and what does he do? But he grabs one of the numerous stones around that place, and he uses it for his pillow. I don't know about you, but that never would have occurred to me to do. I think nothing is better than a rock for a pillow. Bruce Hornsby in his song, Muddy Black River, has a line that says, and I can't tell a pillow from a stone. I sure can. Makes a pretty big difference for me. I have been on the quest to find the perfect pillow for most of my life. I don't know if that's true for you. I don't know if I've ever talked about pillows from the pulpit, but here we go. It can't be too hard. It can't be too soft. I don't even know if I'm going to like that pillow in the store until I take it home and try it out for a few nights. The my pillow guy is an interesting fellow. But I tell you, he, he makes a darn good pillow. Um, I I think I have found the one that I like the most, but pillows have been around for a very long time. As far back as Mesopotamia 7,000 BC, when pillows were first used, and they were actually made, interestingly, of stone, and they were carved into a cradle shape. That doesn't look very comfortable, does it? They weren't designed for comfort, though, as much as a way to keep insects from crawling into your ears and your nose or your mouth while sleeping. I thought that would get you a little bit. (laughs) Soft textile pillows were first created in China. Don't know if you know that. But some thought that luxurious pillows actually sapped the body of energy. Henry VIII, you remember him, actually banned the use of pillows in Britain except for the use by pregnant women. Because, again, they thought it made you soft. Talk about government overreach. Stealing our pillows. Well, I hope you enjoyed that diversion into the history of pillows, but let me give you some pillow theology. Jacob's use of a pillow that night was mentioned to show how difficult his life has been. And now he's all by himself. He's on the run. He's crossing the burning sand of the desert. He has an uneasy conscience and a guilty and heavy heart. And a, and a moment ago, ago, I said that Jacob was going on a, on a journey of about 550 miles. But what he didn't know, that he was about to begin another journey into the very interior of his life, which would be much more intense and much more profound. Jacob was not an atheist. But until now, he really did not know God in a personal way. He knew of him. He knew about him. I think we might even say that he saw evidences of God's presence in the world around him. But I think God was too remote for him. Maybe God was too big, too too way out there, too beyond him, too vast. Like some of us, I think Jacob 
up to this point in his life had, had felt as if God had very little time to give attention to him. To little old me. Some of us may feel the same way. There are 7.7 billion people on planet earth. Why would God pay attention to me? Jacob needed to know, as every one of us needs to know, that God is is there. He is real. He wants a relationship with us. But God for him up until this point had only been a second-hand reality. Jacob had been living on borrowed faith. I think I've shared with you before that I'll never forget the time when my parents dropped me off at the, in the parking lot right outside my college dorm where I went to school in California. And my mother's parting words to me as she gave me a hug and whispered in my ear, she said, now it's time for you to make your faith or the faith your own. She had a sense. She was wise enough to say that some of what you believe may have been borrowed from us. And that's what parents do. We pass our faith down to our kids, but now it's, it's time to make it our own. And so it was Jacob, his opportunity to make his faith his own. It was now time for the faith of his grandfather and the faith of his father, Isaac, to become his own. Because as it's been said, God does not have any grandchildren. He just has kids. Some people think that I've been a little rough on Jacob in this series so far. I hope not. I simply know him because I know myself. But Jacob at this point in this series really doesn't know himself. And even more, he really doesn't know who God is. He believed in God, but he thought that God needed his help constantly. He saw himself something as God's assistant, repeatedly taking things into his own hands. And so Jacob has a lot of growing to do. And until this point, we really have no record of Jacob having a personal encounter with God. But all of that is about to change and is going to change in an extraordinary way. While Jacob may not have been looking for God, one thing we know is that God was looking for him. And you know, that may be your story too. It's not enough that you know some things about God, knowing him. I mean, really, really knowing him is more than just having some facts or some basic head knowledge about God. But when you come to see him, when you come to know him, when you come to taste and see that the Lord is good, then everything in your life up until that point is just prologue. Maybe your whole life has been up until now about you, what you can earn, what you can dictate, what you can manipulate, what you can control. I've tried to do it my way, Jacob might say, and and everything I have to show for it is nothing but regret. But hear me, hear me from the life of Jacob and hear me from my own experience and the experience of Christians all around the world. God's pleasure to bless you always exceeds your ability to disappoint him. God's pleasure, his delight in blessing you always exceeds your ability to disappoint him. His grace is always greater than our sin. Our sin is great, but his mercy is so much more. Jacob was sleeping between a rock and a hard place when he dreamed then one of the most famous dreams in history. We'll take it Sentence by sentence, maybe verse by verse, but we pick it up again in verse 12 and we're told, and he dreamed. 
and behold, there was a ladder set up on earth, and the top of it reached to heaven, and behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. Jacob has a dream, and that dream becomes a window into a different dimension. Two times in verse 12 alone, the writer uses the word behold to express astonishment, surprise. You won't believe this unless I told you. That's the idea. Jacob is given a peek behind the veil. I don't know where the fullness of that spiritual dimension is. Some suggest that there is a thin veil that is just beyond our realm. And it's it's expansive and it's amazing. And Jacob is now looking into that veil. He, He sees a supernatural world that is buzzing with activity. We might read this about this dream and wonder to ourselves, is this dream a reality or is it a reality within a dream? Because in his dream, God shows him the spiritual realm and it blows him away. He sees two things and notice them with me. First, he sees a ladder or a stairway and the Hebrew word salam suggests something like an ancient ziggurat. You remember the Tower of Babel that they tried to build that its top reached the heavens. Maybe it was something like that that Jacob saw in his dream, a vast tower with a series of terraced landings. Or maybe it was something like a grand staircase that was winding its way all the way up to heaven itself. He sees a stairway. Secondly, he also sees the angels of God. Angels, by this time in the book of Genesis, have only been mentioned a couple of times and an appearance to Abraham. And now we have angels appearing to Jacob. Few people in history have been given the privilege of perceiving angels doing what angels do. And in his dream, Jacob sees them moving up and down, back and forth between heaven and earth. What are angels? Angels are the heralds of God. They are messengers of God sent to those to whom God is watching over and caring for. And they carry out his decrees. They convey his messages from heaven to earth, constantly descending from his presence, coming down and then going back. Jacob sees the angels of God. Centuries later, when Jesus was choosing his disciples, he applied this image to himself when he meets Nathanael. In the first chapter of the Gospel of John, Philip found his friend Nathanael and told him, we have found the Messiah. He's over the hill and down the street in Nazareth. And Nathanael said, come on, you're crazy. God doesn't come down to places like Nazareth. And Philip said, hey, come and see. Nathanael went with Philip and he saw Jesus. And when Jesus met him, he said something like hail or hello an Israelite in whom there is no guile. And Nathanael turned to Jesus and said, how do you know me? And Jesus said, know you, Nathanael. I saw you while you were sitting under the fig tree. Now we have no idea what Jesus meant when he said said that. What was Nathanael doing under the fig tree? We don't know. Or maybe when when Nathaniel was sitting on the, under the victory, he was maybe a mile or two away from where Jesus was. And yet Jesus saw him. But that was enough for Nathaniel. 
For then he said, you, Rabbi, you are the son of God. And Jesus said to him, you think you're impressed by that? This is what you're going to see. You're going to see, you're going to see the angels of God ascending and descending on me. And Jesus is saying to Nathaniel, he is announcing to the world that he was the stairway. He was the ladder that Jacob saw in his dream. You are the son of God. So the stairway that Jacob saw was none other than Jesus himself. And it's an astounding claim. And again, Jesus said, the angels of God are descending and descending on me. And if you understand who I am, then you will see heaven open. If you grasp who I am, then you will understand that I am the link between heaven and earth. I am the one who brings heaven and earth together. This is no small dream then that Jacob has. I don't know if you can remember your dreams. I have wild dreams. Last night I had a dream that we were in the apocalypse. Maybe it's just because this is the kind of world that we're and we're having to take all our stuff and leave. Maybe Jacob was on my mind. I don't know why. Maybe it was something I ate for dinner that caused me to have the dream that I had. But this is a real dream. This was a dream given by by God to him. And Jesus is is announcing to us in the midst of saying, I am that ladder that I came down and I suffered death. Even the attack of hell against my life so that I could bring you life. I have done everything for you. But in order to enter heaven, Jesus is saying to you and me, you must cross over my dead body and my resurrected life to enter into heaven itself. So Jesus is everything that Jacob saw in reality. There is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. But what I love about this is that Jacob saw Jesus coming down, coming down to him, coming down to his brokenness, coming down to his guilt, coming down to his shame. Why did Jesus come? He came because of his love for you. He came because he saw you covered in shame. He came because he saw your flaws. He saw how messed up things were. Friends, never forget this. God is drawn to your brokenness. We think we want to run from it. We got to to put it in disguise. We got to cover it up. But he is drawn to your brokenness and that's why he came into this world and that's why Jesus came and that's why he gave his life on the cross. He came all the way down in order that he might love us all the way back to heaven itself. What Jacob saw in his dream was amazing, but then he also heard God speaking. And behold, verse 13 says, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac, period. The next time God identifies himself that way, he will say, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. At this point, I'm just the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie. I will now give to you and to your offspring. And your offspring shall be like dust, the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all of the families of the earth 
be blessed. He sees a dream, but then he hears a voice. It is God speaking. And the first words of verse 13 say, and behold, the Lord stood. What are the next two words? Above it. That word, that description, that preposition, if you will, the word has one of two reference points. I mean, it could mean the Lord stood above it, meaning the stairway, or the Lord stood above him, meaning Jacob. You put it together in your own mind. Here's this dream, and he sees this dream of this ladder. That ladder represents Christ, but the angels of, of heaven are descending and ascending on it. Is the Lord standing above the ladder, way, 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 way at the top? Or is the Lord standing above him? That's how I take it. I think the Lord is right there above him. We might even say beside him. So the sense is not that the Lord is all the way at the top of this ladder, but that he has come all the way down. He is right there. And I emphasize that because that's what the Christian faith is all about. Because I know of no other God in any other kind of religion that has come all the way down for you and me. And he has come all the way down and now he is standing over Jacob. And he is, he is the God who wants to be known. And he is the God who wants to be known as the one who came all the way down. That's why when Christ came into flesh, he was placed in a manger. The God who came all the way down is the God who died on the cross. Because every other human stairway is simply a one-way road to nothing. But Jesus Christ is the true stairway. He is the God who has come down all the way for you and me. And he comes to exactly where we are and he stands over us. He is above Jacob. He is above you. He is standing over you in a protective kind of way. The dream that Jacob had was a picture, an amazing picture. That picture, like all dreams, might fade over the years. But then when God speaks, he speaks his word into Jacob's life that would carry him through all of the hardships of life. Notice quickly that God says three things to him. He promised him land. Jacob at this point is still standing in the land of Canaan, and God said, all of it belongs to you. That's an amazing promise to a man who has spent all of his life up until now scheming to get what he wanted. And God says to him, it's yours. I'm giving it to you. It was an act of sovereign grace. We don't do our part and then God blesses us. God blesses us and then he uses us. It's his grace that comes into our lives and his grace is always on the front end. After all, what can we do to earn anything that we have? It is all received as a gift. And God says to Jacob, I am giving you this land. He said it to Abraham, he said it to Isaac, and now God says it to Jacob. Secondly, he, he promised Jacob offspring. Jacob at this point is not married. He has no family yet. Well, that will drastically change over the next 20 years. When he finally gets to where he's going, he, he ends up getting married and getting more than he expected when he got married. We'll get there soon enough. And then he has 12 boys who become the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel. God promises offspring. And thirdly, God assured Jacob of his presence. Look at verse 15. Behold, I am with you, 
and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. He is, he is again confirming the blessings that Isaac spoke over him. But now God himself is saying it. God said nothing will prevent my blessing over your life. I, I will give to you all that I have promised. You know, you once pretended to be Esau before your father so that your father would bless you. I want you to know that these blessings that are coming to you now are coming from my hand. And though you once received them by subterfuge, they were really meant for you. You did not receive them the way that I intended, but they are yours and they are yours now, not by scheming and pretending, but by surrendering and yielding. They are yours. What was God doing? God was making his word central in Jacob's life. That's the secret of the Christian life. God's word becoming central in your life and mine. It's going to be the anchor in his life. And if you need an anchor in your life, you need the anchor of his word to keep you steady, to keep you secure, to keep you constant. It's exactly what Jacob needed then. It's exactly what we need every day of our lives. Jacob was at rock bottom. And in an unexpected place, God found him. And when you find yourself in unexpected places, what you need more than anything else is is God's word to be your anchor, the central feature of your life. So he comes down, he stands over him. He speaks words of unconditional assurance to Jacob. By the way, did you notice that there's not a single word of condemnation? And then verse 16, Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, surely the Lord is in this place. And I did not know it. The whole thing was like a surprise to him. He encountered the presence of God in an unexpected place. He was far from home, but God was with him. Some of you need to hear that today because you may have found yourself in a place you never expected. You may be far from home, far from relatives, far from friends, but God is with you. He does not leave you. You know, the average American, if he or she even thinks about God, thinks that that he's remote and that heaven is just some imaginary place. But when that thin veil that separates heaven and earth is removed, this reality is overwhelming. God is here. There's not a place he isn't. He is neither remote or indifferent. This world is ablaze in the spiritual realm and that veil just on the other side. He's working things out. If you want to know what's going on in the world today, this is it. In the midst of all the suffering and war and heartache, God is working out his purposes. He's connecting the dots that we cannot see. He's doing things that we don't understand. He sees the things we cannot see. And there is this moment of discovery for Jacob and for us when we realize that we do not have to go where God is, but he meets us exactly where we are because he is with us wherever we go. 
There's such hope in that. Listen to C.S. Lewis who said, the presence of God, the presence of God is not the same as the sense of the presence of God. The latter may be due to imagination. The former may be attended with no sensible consolation. The act which engenders a child ought to be and is usually attended by pleasure. But it is not pleasure that produces a child. Where there is pleasure, there may be sterility. Where there is no pleasure, the act may be fertile. And in the spiritual marriage of God and the soul, it is the same. It is the actual presence, not the sensation of the presence, of the Holy Ghost, which begets Christ in us, the sense of the presence is a super added gift for which we give thanks when it comes. In other words, what he is simply saying is that it's just not a sense of the presence of God that gives you, if you will, goosebumps up your arms. It is truly his presence with you. He is as near to you right now as anybody sitting next to you. The Bible says that he holds our breath in his hand. That's how close he is. Jacob wakes up, verse 17. And he was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. He's overwhelmed. Because he realizes there is no place where God isn't. Any old place is made alive because God is there. I often quote it because I just think she got it so right when Elizabeth Barrett Browning said, Earth is crammed with heaven and every common bush aflame with God, but only those who see take off their shoes. The rest, that is those who don't see, just sit around and pluck blackberries. Earth is aflamed with heaven. God is here. And when you think you are totally alone, you're not. God is with you. He sees your brokenness. He is drawn to you. He loves you so completely. Verse 18, so early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at the first. He takes the stone, he builds a pillar, he pours oil on it, And he says, this is Bethel, this is the house of God. That's what the word means. It's not an architectural description. It's a spiritual reality. When we gather and worship, this is the house of God. It's not the place, it's not a building where God dwells, but he's here. But you know what? That description applies to anywhere you go, in a hospital room, on a school bus, in your dorm room. Why? Because Jesus Christ is our Bethel. Any place can be your house of God because he's in that place. Did you notice, though, that that stone used for a pillow back in verse verse 12 or so, verse 10, excuse me, is back again in verse 18. Jacob takes it, he makes a pillar from it, he pours oil over it. Why is he doing all that? Because he's worshiping. 
because his life, his heart has just been blown open by the presence of God. And he marks the place where God first encountered him. One more thing before we close. Because the last thing I I want you to see is Jacob's response. Jacob has given the best news of all. So what does he say to it? Well, he makes a vow. Verse 20, then Jacob made a vow saying, if God be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone of which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. Jacob has this amazing dream and God speaks to him in astounding words. And Jacob responds by sensing the Lord is in this place. His presence is here. And then he makes a vow. This is the first recorded vow in the Bible. What do you make of it? Some are pretty critical of Jacob and his vow. And and what bothers some is that very, very first word in verse 20 of his vow, if God be with me and will keep me. And then then he goes on to say, then he will be my God. The end of verse 21. Is he bargaining with God? Maybe Jacob is still the old Jacob. And he's just hedging his bets. If God does this and I'll do that. It's all sounding very, very conditional. Unless you take the word if and you translate it since because they're both conditional. Both are conditional statements and both are right. Either way, since God will be with me, then I will make you my God. Is he bargaining? I don't know. I don't know because we all have imperfect motivations. None of us know exactly how to put things at times. I think what Jacob is simply saying here in light of the fact that God has made himself so wonderfully revealed to him is I will honor you. In light of what you have shown me, this is what I will do. And he saw God and he heard God and it changed his life. Not thoroughly and not perfectly. Because God's going to do some deeper things in him in chapter 29 when he meets Laban, his uncle. And he gets tricked on his wedding night. And then God is going to meet him in the desert again in the middle of the night when he wrestles with him. And so as with all of us, we go through these stages of growth in our walk with God. And none of us ever arrive at that place where finally we've reached perfection, right? But this is Jacob saying to God, I will honor you with my life. It's a tremendous story. Let me give you a few things as you walk away this morning. Let these things just hang over your life in the most positive way imaginable today and into this week. Number one, no matter where life takes you, God is already there. Theologians speak of prevenient grace. You know what prevenient grace is? Prevenient grace? It's It's that grace that runs ahead of you. So here you are on a Sunday morning sitting in church. But some of you, I can tell, are thinking about what's coming up this week. I can read your thoughts. Maybe you got something happening this Thursday that's unsettling you. Maybe you're nervous about it. You know what God's grace does? It runs ahead of you. 
and he's already there on Thursday. God, if you will, rides tandem bicycles with us. And he always takes the front seat. So he always gets there before we do. So know this week, where whatever comes your way, God was there first. And his grace will meet you exactly the way you need it. Number two, remember God's promise to you in the desolate places of life. There could be a, nothing more barren than the desert that Jacob found himself in. And yet God met him there. You may be going somewhere in your life where you feel all alone. It may feel like a barren place. Your friends may not get it. Your family may not understand. Circumstances may even be unkind to you. But in all of those desolate places, make your anchor, God's promises, and God's word. I love that our worship team sang that all of God's promises are answered yes for us in Christ Hang on to those promises. Don't let them go. Really, that is all you need. There have been times in my life when I've had nothing else to hold on to but what God has said. And then finally, when life hands you a stone for a pillow, make a pillar. When life delivers its best to you, which is its worst, and you have to put your head down on a pillow, make a pillar. What do I mean by that? Take the worst. See God. Sense his presence. And worship him. Take that stone pillar and turn it into a pillar where you worship him for all that he is and all that he has done. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for the study of the life of Jacob. And, and he has taken us in his own life on such an amazing journey from birth now to this moment when he encounters you in such a real and direct personal way. So that telling his story is really, Father, then a story for us. Because in the same way, you want to make yourself known to every single person in this room in a real way, in a powerful way, for us to know your presence, to know that you came all the way down from heaven and are standing over us. And that ladder is Christ. Christ came all the way down. He humbled himself, the Bible says, all the way to the point of death, even obedience to the cross, so that he might lift us all the way up. Father, circumstances of life are hard. The situations that we find ourselves in are trying. And sometimes we may feel utterly alone. Thank you that Jesus said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I'll never abandon you for I am with you even to the end of the age. So Father, when we find ourselves in desolate places, help us to hang on to Christ and to his word. Father, even help us to take that stone pillow 
that symbolizes all of our hardship and turn it into a pillar of worship and praise to you. Father, we love you. Thank you for your sustaining, enduring, keeping presence in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Let me invite you to stand.